What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, Today we're doing a special show on the life and legacy of Scottish psychiatrist R.D. Lang. And I'm very excited because I've invited um, one of Lang's uh, students and colleagues on the show, Michael Guy Thompson. Uh, Michael Guy Thompson is a psychoanalyst. Um, He trained with R.D. Lang, and he's also the author of The Death of Desire. Uh, He's a teacher and trainer and on the faculty of the California Institute of Integral Studies and the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. Michael is the director of the R.D. Lang in the 21st Century Seminar, which happens every year at Esalen Institute, and he's also the founder of the Gnosis Retreat Center in the San Francisco Bay Area. So welcome to Madness Radio, Michael Guy Thompson. Well, thank you so much, Will, for inviting me. I'm just really excited to be doing this show on R.D. Lang, and I'm very honored to have one of his students and colleagues as a guest. Uh, Maybe people don't know R.D. Lang's work. He was extremely popular in the 60s and 70s. He's kind of associated with the the radical uh, psychiatry movement in the 60s and 70s. had a huge influence on the psychiatric survivor movement and an incredible he was really a, a cultural icon in a lot of ways and a deep, deep personal influence on me. And I, I know that he also had an influence on, on you, Michael. And so uh, I think it's just um, fantastic to have you on the, on the show today. And maybe we can just get started. You know, when was the first moment that you read uh, Lang's writing and then give us kind of an introduction to who is this character, R.D. Lang, and why was he so compelling to you that you went and studied with him and, and became his colleague and that today he's so influential on your own work? Well, it was really serendipitous, uh, Will, how I ever heard about R.D. Lang. Uh, you know, I um, was interested in philosophy as a teenager and discovered uh, Sartre and Nietzsche and, um, you know, in that rebellious period of our of our lives, the, these kinds of uh, people get our attention. Even Sigmund Freud, who I thought of as a very radical uh, guy back then. And I just decided that I wanted to pursue this uh, field of going into psychology, uh, but from a more philosophical existential perspective. And I was in the army, got drafted, went to Vietnam, uh, managed to survive that. And when I got out of the service, I decided to move to California. This would have been 1970. And uh, walking on a beach one day, this friendly young hippie comes up to me and uh, starts chatting and wants to know, uh, you know, who I am. And um, I mentioned I was interested in existentialism and and psychoanalysis. And he pulls this book out of his uh, backpack. looked like it had been read a million times and hands it to me and says, here, I think you're going to like this. And it was a book by R.D. Lang, who I'd never heard of, called The Divided Self. And I just took a look at the back uh, jacket of it and um, immediately 
mentions that he's a psychiatrist and works with schizophrenia and has all these radical ideas. And I was kind of put off by this because I thought, well, come on, who really wants to work with uh, schizophrenia? So I handed the book back and he said, no, 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 I think you're really going to like this book. <laughs> and had just insisted that I take it. And uh, I took it and he wandered off, you know, never to be heard from again. So I sit down and began to read the book and I was completely blown away. I didn't realize Lang was a philosopher, had studied virtually everything in the Western canon as well as uh, Eastern religions. Uh, this was a really erudite, interesting, brilliant person who had an amazing gift for writing and making you feel that the things he was describing, no matter how crazy it might sound, uh, seemed strangely familiar. He was really talking about your inner core and some of the feelings that uh, I was certainly struggling with. So this really uh, was, uh, was an awakening for me. So uh, I decided uh, to start reading everything else of his. I became a devotee. And in a year or two, Lang visited Berkeley uh, for a public lecture tour, and I got to meet him. And by this time, I was a complete convert. But once, once he said at his uh, lecture, you know, I have a small group of people that I work with, uh, if you're interested in giving up psychology, I was pretty much on the next plane to London, abandoned my graduate studies, said, you know, this is not what I'm looking for. Um, and uh, never looked back, you know, went there and uh, uh, worked with Lang for about seven years. Well, I think that's you touch on one of the things that's so powerful about Lang's writing and his presence was that the way that his capacity to communicate and to write really bridged the radical world of a lot of the philosophy of the time, especially existentialism and phenomenology and the kind of rebellious revolutionary spirit that's going on uh, in philosophy, he bridged it through writing that was very clear and very compelling and people could understand. He was, he was a very popular, um, you, know, you could pick up a paperback and people were just were reading him like the pop um, writers of the time. But let's, let's give people a flavor of why we think this is so interesting, why we want to <laughs> encourage the listeners to get interested in R.D. Lang and read some of his his work, um, just some quotes that I have. One of the most basic things about Lang is that he was really a champion of, of rendering what's called schizophrenia or what's called psychosis as intelligible in context. And so one of his quotes is, the experience and behavior that gets labeled schizophrenia is a special strategy that a person invents in order to live in an unlivable situation. Now, there's so much in that that critiques the prevailing medical view of what schizophrenia and psychosis are, and he's drawing on the work of Irving Goffman, he's drawing on the work of Gregory Bateson, but he's able to put it in such a clear and powerful way and then convey it to readers. And was this part of what captured your interest and attention when you started reading The Divided Self? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, you know, when I started reading psychology and um, what passes for clinical psychology, my, my mind was just numbed. 
the terminology, even in the psychoanalytic literature, you just have to wade through this copious stuff, you know, that's so abstract or mind-numbing, you can hardly understand what they're talking about. Lang just cut right through that with comments like this uh, that you just quoted. You know, he also takes from uh, Freud, uh, but much more eloquently, Freud was the first person to say that what we call uh, defense mechanisms and uh, psychopathological symptoms, whether they're neurotic or psychotic, you know, which is a great divide in the world of psychoanalysis, that the reason we become neurotic in the first place is to try to heal ourselves. You know, we, we've reached our limit. We can't cope anymore with whatever it is that the world is throwing at us. And, and for the most part, you know, we manage to navigate and handle what the world throws to us without getting completely overwhelmed by it. But a lot of people, as we don't know how many, maybe most of us, uh, find this incredibly challenging. We lose our balance. We take a fall. Uh, why is that? You know, and, and we've kind of pathologized it. We've made it into a psychiatric medical symptom of, of some kind of a disease entity. Lang just cuts right through that idea by calling it a strategy that we use our minds to try to you know, protect ourselves from something that's scaring the daylights out of us. And that's what gets labeled schizophrenia, psychosis, neurosis, you name it. That, and that's Lang's gift. He can put it in that way. And that experience that someone is confronting and trying to deal with and that overwhelms and is actually called normal society. It's called normal, exactly. the normal family. So he says that we are all in a post-hypnotic trance induced in early infancy. From the moment of birth, when the Stone Age baby confronts the 20th century mother, the baby is subjected to these forces of violence called love, as the mother and father have been, and their parents and their parents before them. These, force, these forces are mainly concerned with destroying most of the child's potentialities. This enterprise is on the whole successful. That's one of my favorite quotes uh, you just read from the politics of experience. Of course, Lang was very uh, influenced by Marxist uh, theory, as all intellectuals were uh, in that era. And uh, that idea that society is destroying us and making us more alienated, and we don't even know it's happening, uh, is really a critique of capitalism and just how uh, greedy and selfish uh, capitalism can be when it's run amok, as of course, as we see right now in 2017, it's run more amok than probably ever, ever before. This was kind of part of the social critique. Lang uh, sometimes got accused of blaming parents, especially mothers, for people becoming diagnosed uh, some kind of psychotic condition. Uh, certainly many psychoanalysts took that position. But Lang attributed it to society, that we're all implicated in this. It's, a, it's our value system. What, why is it we don't reach out and help people that are unable to work and are, are just too out of it to, to deal with what we take for granted every day? And uh, some societies are more generous about this than others, as you well know, uh, especially when you get out of the U.S. But this is the predicament we have here. 
And it was a similar predicament that Lang was struggling with in the United Kingdom, is that there just wasn't a lot of attention and care about this or even recognition that the way we're going about living our daily lives is driving a lot of people crazy. Yeah, he says he says really clearly, um, there's another quote from The Politics of Experience. He says, nor is it a matter of laying the blame at anyone's door. The untenable position, the can't-win double-bind, the situation of checkmate is by definition not obvious to the protagonists. Very seldom is it a question of contrived, deliberate, cynical lies or a ruthless intention to drive someone crazy. Although, he says, this occurs more commonly than is usually supposed. I think that's absolutely the crux of the problem. And and I think it's um, doubly ironic that we have set in place this entity that we call the mental health uh, system or delivery system, uh, where we've made um, the mind part of the medical praxis, and that we, uh, um, you know, that we come at this um, in such a way that uh, seems almost cruel to the outside observer. You know, you you see the way that in mental hospitals, for example, uh, people are treated sometimes. Uh, they're treated very compassionately. You know, they, they luck out and there's a really wonderful person there that greets them and takes care of them. But as often as not, it can be a brutal experience and very impersonal. And, uh, and you're not treated as a person at all. Um, so this is, the, uh, this is the big problem, I think, that, of course, people like Marcuse, um, Harry Stack Sullivan, founder of the interpersonal school of psychoanalysis. These are all, uh, you know, leftist, very educated in radical politics. Uh, they were very attuned to social issues and how social values uh, play such a huge role in the kind of symptoms that families go to therapists for. Uh, that, that was a big part of psychoanalysis in its infancy. Over the years, decades, especially, I think, as it got Americanized, it became very conservative and it became a tool of psychiatry, uh, which was unusual. It never became a tool of psychiatry in the UK or many of the other countries. Uh, so really, it became this ultra-conservative delivery system um, intended to be lucrative. Uh, so these are, these are the trends that seem to take a hold and evolve and the more edgy, leftist, socially aware aspects uh, began to die out. And now you look at psychoanalysis today and it's virtually disappeared completely. And Lang, Lang says that this question of adaptation is really central. Uh, one of his quotes is, only by the most outrageous violation of ourselves have we achieved our capacity to live in relative adjustment to a civilization apparently driven to its own destruction. So this, I think, is the, is the main critique that he starts with and that leads him, in a sense, to be on the side of madness. He's often accused of, of, being, of romanticizing madness or celebrating the madman as a revolutionary, which I, I don't think that he does. But he is saying that the, the point is not to adjust people to a society that has normalized violence, so much harm, uh, but instead to... to understand where people's response come from comes from and then help them 
to move through it in a way that's actually going to be liberating for them and then potentially liberating for the society. Well, yeah, that's that's the number of the problem. And I, I think this is why we're uh, stuck in this kind of dilemma uh, that continues to this day. Uh, you know, I remember uh, in the 70s when I went to work with Lang, uh, the use of ECT, you know, electric shocks, uh, were considered to be barbaric. And there was a huge outcry uh, against uh, against its usage. Uh, today, ECT is used more often, more prevalently than ever in history. There's no social outcry about this at all. And um, we continue to pathologize people who think and behave in ways that are a little different, uh, and we associate being crazed, being depressed, uh, being out of it, being beside yourself, being scared and isolated and maybe a little paranoid with being a sick person that needs to be treated. So if there's a treatment, and of course the treatment today is but for the most part medication, which is a misnomer, of course, uh, it just sedates you. Um, then, then that's that's all that we do, and 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 so does that cure anything? I mean, that's what treatments are supposed to do. Well, for the most part, no, it's not going to cure anything because it isn't a pathological condition. Our minds are very fragile instruments that are constantly gauging what's going on around us. Some of us just happen to be more anxious and frightened than other people. We take more extremes to protect ourselves, and sometimes we behave in ways that seem a little eccentric or nonsensical. Why label that a medical condition that needs to be treated and cured? Why not find a way to understand what's going on with that person and welcome them into the social network instead of isolating them and abandoning them to some kind of facility? Let's take a little bit deeper look in this idea of the uh, normalization of violence. And Lang is very critical of what happens in families. He says that the family's role is to repress eros, that really the, the innate capacities of the child are being destroyed by the family. And it's not about blaming the mother or blaming the father. It's a social conditioning. One of his quotes is, children do not give up their innate imagination, curiosity, dreaminess easily. You have to love them to get them to do that. He was a big critic of what we call love, not actually being loving and caring. Help us understand a little bit more about Lang's view of the family and, and misunderstanding of what love is and what families actually do to us. Well, I, I think for this, uh, Lang certainly takes a lot from Sartre, uh, who was a brilliant um, commentator and observer of uh, everyday society. You know, Lang's uh, collaboration with uh, Aaron Esterson uh, produced a very interesting book called Sanity, Madness, and the Family, which was uh, simply uh, interviews that the two of them had conducted with families where a daughter had been diagnosed as schizophrenic and was put in a mental institution. And uh, for a number of years, they, they conducted extensive interviews with uh, the families together, the parents separated, the uh, 
designated patient, separated, etc. And these are fascinating because what you get is an inside scoop on what these families were like. And uh, if you take away anything, you take away the idea that really all of these families were doing their very best to try to help this daughter and completely out of their depth in comprehending any part of it. And their own fears and defenses, of course, played a role in how they had to isolate their children. Uh, they, they were not mean, despicable people. They, they were decent, ordinary parents trying to do their best. This was a chilling discovery uh, that Lang and Esterson made from these uh, interviews to realize that you really can't lay the blame specifically at anyone. You know, the closer you look at families, the more you realize that, well, all families are a little crazy, you know, even even the ones that don't have so-called schizophrenic members in them. They did studies of, of so-called sane families and well and found that the dynamics were identical. So, you know, we don't really know what uh, why it is, you know, that some of us uh, go to sea, as it were, and some of us somehow adapt and cope, you know, to this situation. Now there's an incredible permissiveness, and maybe there isn't the kind of authoritarianism that Lang was identifying. So would you say that his critique still holds true today, even with the cultural changes around what's actually happening in families today? Yeah, I, don't, I can't say that I see any difference in it at all, uh, whether parents are authoritarian on the one extreme or permissive. You still see uh, the same family dynamics. You still see people losing their minds. Uh, now, some people would argue, oh, well, that must say that it's all genetic. You know, if it doesn't make any difference, what happens in the culture? It just must be a biological disease entity that we haven't been able to isolate. As you well know, there's no evidence whatsoever that there is any kind of genetic component to any kind of mental uh, attitude or state of mind. But it is a mystery as to why some people cope better than other people. An even bigger uh, issue, of course, is once someone has lost their way, what's going to help them? And you're right, you know, John Perry, Iward, there are a number of places like Soteria who all followed this model. Uh, let's not medicate them. That was the heart and soul of the uh, strategy. Uh, why throw that at them? Let them just try to cope the best they can without medication. Some people could do that in their home environment. Uh, some people needed a special environment because the parents were too... Uh, threatened or afraid or out of their depth. Uh, often you needed someone around this person like 24 hours a day to protect them and uh, make sure nothing bad happens to them and just let them get through it. So that was the idea. And I think that that model has had proven to have significant success, all of them, even though they had very different strategies and very different ways of working at it, just not giving medication and giving people a place to stay for as long as they needed. Um, most people that had that opportunity at Lang's work uh, never went back to a mental hospital again. That, to us, was the real litmus of success, not giving them some kind of mental inventory exam 
and say, now, how many symptoms do you still have, et cetera? As long as you can cope and get along with people, which is the biggest problem I think most people have that get marginalized, then you've got a life. And, and, and that's what it's about, is giving you a life, not, not just um, you know, making you more acceptable to society's views of how you're supposed to be. One of Lang's quotes is, we respect the voyager, the explorer, the climber, the spaceman. Why is it we do not respect the mad who are often exploring the inner space and time of consciousness? I think that one of the key things here is that it's really, and this is maybe one of the messages of existentialism too, that only by encountering these struggles inside of yourself, by having some familiarity with these experiences of alienation and adapting to normalize violence only by encountering them in ourselves, then can we then go on and help other people by understanding the mutuality and the common struggle. A, a little bit more about Lang as a person, because he was apparently he was incredibly charismatic. He was quite a trickster, coyote character who would just be very provocative. He was very wild. He was also quite uh, in love with alcohol. He got drank, drunk a lot. And um, maybe that was part of his permissiveness or his showing his own shadow or his authenticity or something. But give us, a, give us more of a sense of what he was like. How did he operate? What was it that was so special about his, the kind of gift or talent he had for reaching people who were in those so-called mad states? And how was it to kind of be around him? What kinds of things did he do and say? Well, that's, that's a tough one because I'm not sure anyone has the inside track on who R.D. Lang really was. Uh, some of his family members will have their take on it, and those are not uh, unified. And then those of us who worked very closely with him uh, had a very unique perspective. And, and of course, his patients uh, would have been another group that would uh, have had firsthand intimate experience with him. Um, but just in the kind of day-to-day uh, -day, uh, there was something a little intimidating and scary about Lang. Um, he uh, usually always had a very serious uh, demeanor, um, especially if you were in a meeting with him. Uh, there were no social niceties uh, with Lang. Uh, if you had a meeting, you came in, you sit down, you got right down to business. Uh, very focused, uh, very penetrating. Uh, every word out of his mouth was carefully thought out. And yes, there was the charisma and some kind of energy that he put off that was uh, so compelling. Uh, you just naturally were drawn to him. There was something about what he stood for, what he was trying to do. And, you know, he didn't get paid for uh, any of these uh, things that he put up. Uh, this just came from his heart. Uh, and that, of course, was a wonderful role model because that inspired all of us to do exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, we, we gave it with our hearts as well. That, that was a key to how Lang managed to get people around him to give up years of their life just to support and give to this uh, idea. But I saw he could be different in different contexts. Uh, Michael, give us some give us some example psychosis because he had some kind of very very special 
talent or gift or quality that he was able to really connect and really help people? Well, there were a few times when uh, I would have a consultation with Lang uh, where he was uh, seeing somebody for the first time. What struck me about how Lang engaged with people of that nature was he was very, very quiet. So the, the, the person that came for the consultation might be in a kind of a hyperspace, might be talking a lot, might be anxious or really upset. He would just listen. And 15 minutes or so into this, everything just kind of changed. And then a real dialogue began to take place. And what really struck me about his approach was just getting to the heart of, you know, what, what is it that you're really, really most worried about here? And what kind of help are you really looking for? And if, if the help kind of help they were looking for uh, might have included moving into one of those houses or going into therapy with somebody, then he would have helped them find the right house or the right therapist. Sometimes they just wanted advice on what to do about somebody that was living at home with them. And they'd go away feeling like, I can handle this. I, I feel I'm, I, can, I can do it now. You know, I've had, I've had R.D. Lang tell me that I can do it, and I do believe in it. He had that kind of power and uh, impact on people. But, you know, I mean, he had a wonderful, soft, sensitive side. I've never seen anybody more empathic or what I prefer to call sympathic uh, with people. He just tuned in immediately, felt very comfortable in any one-on-one uh, -on -one situation. You never seem to uh, need to talk, need to explain, need to give an opinion. That was, I think, Lang at his best. He, uh, he could also be a bully when he was in social situations, uh, whether it be drinking and drugs, and he really loved both. Um, he could get pretty provocative and insulting. One of the best uh, ways that I can explain what my relationship with him was like was that I never really liked Lang as a person, but I really loved him profoundly and would have done anything for him. Uh, so uh, some people are like that. You know, they don't, they don't go to any lengths whatsoever to kind of win you over, so to speak. I never ever remember getting any thanks for the seven years that I spent in London working with Lang. Lang knew that it was an opportunity of a lifetime, and I was lucky to have taken it. And that was all the thanks I, I needed, you know. So that was Lang. Um, now, of course, he was uh, somewhat narcissistic in that regard, uh, but he was also a very generous and loving person, that, uh, the likes of which I've never encountered among any psychiatrist or psychoanalyst. Yeah, it sounds that you know, he has the complexity of both the dark and the light that many extraordinarily talented people who get put into a position of cultural leadership have that, that quality of depth of character and complexity, and they're not, they're not simple. It's all about shades of, of gray. Now, you mentioned um, LSD, and that is something I think it's, Lang is associated with in the popular mind, but one of the things that we forget about the use of, of psychedelics from the 50s and the 60s is that a lot of the psychiatrists and psychotherapists were you know, using psychedelics as a way of creating a certain kind of empathy or sympathy for the experience of psychosis, that they would take this drug, they would have this overwhelming, incredible, scary, powerful madness experience, and then it would um, have enough of the qualities 
of psychosis or schizophrenia or whatever it was being labeled or diagnosed as, that, that the person could then say, okay, I can start to understand where the other person is from. Do you think that was part of what LSD what was being used for, what was important for in that uh, context? I think so. Uh, I, I, uh, I'd used quite a lot of LSD before I went to London to work with Lang over a period of several years. And um, it's, it's, of course, hard to assess what direct benefit one gets from that experience. Uh, it certainly did uh, make me uh, much more open to my own madness and to be far more empathic with other people who were struggling. I don't know how much of that came from my experience with um, LSD and how much of it simply came from my experience with my own family because I, I grew up in a house uh, full of uh, pretty crazy women, uh, including my mother who uh, committed suicide when I was 14. And, uh, and I was uh, very well versed and attuned to being with people in extreme states and being a calming uh, presence. And that, of course, is something that I recognized with LSD, that sometimes people need that as well. I did go to Soteria House before I went to work with Lang. That was my first experience with that model. And I felt perfectly at home in that environment. Um, you know, some people who visited the houses in London who were students and were curious, uh, just ran out the door, you know, after five minutes. It's like, oh, whoa, I don't want to be around here. You know, they didn't take to it at all. And uh, so not everybody was willing to jump into the deep end and, and, and saw any value in doing that. Yeah, I've often, I've often asked myself that because I have the experience of, there's an individual in a family, everyone's terrified and overwhelmed, and I meet the person, and I'm just completely fine and hanging out, and just, this is okay, here here we are, and I can sort of relate in this, what might be seen in, in a nonsense or a delusional or a, you know, a psychotic way, but it's a space of sensitivity and connection and empathy and, and creativity and imagination that I seem to be relatively comfortable in, whereas put me in, an, in a so-called normal situation or dinner party or something, then I start to really get uncomfortable, you know? So I've, I, I think it partly has to do with my own history of being in the psychiatric system and getting having a sense of what it's like being behind a glass and everybody's looking at you and you're totally alone with your experience. I can kind of relate to that. But also I think it, you know, it does have something to do with my own family, that I, was, I had to be pretty sensitive and pretty calm around my dad sometimes because he would fly off he he was a pretty scary character sometimes and i had to kind of learn to be tuned in to a lot of subtle things but i think this is really one of the key um, pieces of working with people in these states and you know you mentioned that you know we're drawn to this because we, we we're interested in the in the healing aspect and the empathy and we also have something inside of ourselves tell us a little bit more also about your work um you know, after the Philadelphia Association, and then bring us bring us up to the present, because I know you were working in the in the '80s uh, with some projects, and then now you have some new projects that you're you're initiating. Well, yes, in the uh, after we shut down the Shadows program. Well, tell us a little bit. Tell us just a little bit about the Shadows program. I know Nita Gage was involved in that as well. But that did that come out of right? Uh, Nita and I uh, were together in London and came back. Uh, we had two young children. 
we uh, got together with some uh, colleagues in Marin County who had this uh, large property in Nicasio and offered to provide a house for us to use uh, based on these Langian principles. Um, and uh, one of our points of departure was that we um, use, uh, focused on a lot of family therapy. If the family was in the area, uh, we insisted that they participate in regular family sessions. And uh, we felt this was a huge uh, plus uh, to have the families involved. Um, and uh, because uh, very often these uh, young people are going to end up living with the family again, or at least being financially supported by them. It's crucial that they develop a viable, working, uh, affectionate relationship with each other, where they really understand each other's needs. And um, and we, uh, we felt that was a huge success. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, political winds were turning against us. Uh, we got no support from the local mental health uh, system. This is really when the uh, the emergence of the biomedical model and the the uh, uh, pharmacology and NAMI, the family-run um, advocacy group that was so tied into pharmacology and the APA, this is really when things took the big biological turn. Is that right? Exactly. It did take a big biological turn, and I was so shocked to have been away for seven years and come back and see this remarkable sea shift. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. They also banned uh, more than six unrelated people living in a single household because they were getting rid of communes, hippie communes. So, so the whole zitgeist of uh, counterculture had been completely wiped out and anything remotely associated with it. So, And you saw this from, you, you went away to... to England for seven years and you came back and it was just very, very it was, different. it was, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought that it'd be continuing the same direction it had been when I left. And, uh, lo and behold, you know, Reagan had just been elected president. Um, uh, I mean, it was just, uh, it, it was really a pushback in a lot of ways. It was a kind of a, it was a counter reaction in a lot of ways. It was a pushback. And you see that today, Will. I mean, you see a lot of people who lived through that era. Uh, and if they weren't, um, sympathetic to it and a part of it, they have nothing but scathing condemnation of it. Uh, even uh, documentaries made about the 60s and 70s are very disparaging, and they just say, well, see, this is what created the drug culture. Uh, so there's no, there's no uh, appreciation for all the wonderful things uh, that came out of that era that have also been suppressed. Well, a lot of the, uh, a lot, you, you mentioned uh, in electroshock therapy, a lot of the um, protections and improvements of just basic patients' rights came out of the 60s and 70s activism of the psychiatric survivor movement, and Lang was very strongly influential in that. So, so the, the political winds changed, the project that you did with Shadows um, came to an end, and then it was many years later that you started to get back involved with the Lang Symposium and also the new project Gnosis. Yeah, I decided I needed a break. Uh, I spent 10 years of my life living in one kind of community or other. If you include uh, Soteria and Portland Road and Shadows. Uh, and uh, so I was ready to move on and... Um, you know, I was just finishing my graduate work at the Wright Institute, 
while all this was going on. So I created a free association in the late 80s, uh, which was initially seen as a training uh, school to train therapists in the same way that I'd been trained by Lang and his colleagues. And uh, it was kind of like a loose salon. Uh, no certificates were given. Uh, it combined philosophy, psychoanalysis, and spiritual uh, text and traditions, and uh, and was extremely informal. And this was a wonderful experience. Uh, we did this for about 10 years. Uh, it was located in San Francisco. Uh, one of the other goals of the uh, Free Association, which is a 501c3, by the way, um, was to also continue to help and reach out to people in extreme states. So we always had this in the back of our mind that we're going to come back to this uh, when things got a little bit better. Um, but I got sidetracked again with the psychoanalytic community, uh, joined uh, the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California, helped them uh, with their new institute. A lot of my friends had founded it. And also, I love to teach, I love to write. I was doing a lot of publications at this time. Um, and for a while, I was looking for a home in the psychoanalytic community. I thought, you know, of all the people in America in the mental health system, the psychoanalysts do seem to be the hippest and the smartest. And, you know, historically, they've attracted some really interesting people, occasionally radicals and renegades. Uh, but I also discovered that that uh, was no longer the case, uh, that it had become a very conservative community, and that the best uh, part of it, I think, was behind it. So about five years ago, uh, I began to uh, think, you know, it's time for me to get back to my roots. And uh, I need to bring Lang back into the conversation. I knew the 25th anniversary of his death was approaching. Uh, so in 2013, a group of uh, friends of mine who had all worked with Lang uh, organized a uh, weekend symposium in New York called R.D. Lang in the 21st Century. And this was to commemorate his legacy, primarily with people who had worked with him and knew him and speaking from the heart, you know, rather than just academics who had read his works. And uh, this was a wonderful experience. I, I saw people at that meeting that I hadn't seen in 20 or 30 years. It was almost like a uh, homecoming. And uh, the atmosphere was remarkable, Will. It was just the same kind of love and attention and openness that I'd been used to all those years working with Lang. And, and a lot of these people never met Lang, you know, uh, the people that came to the uh, conference. We, we, it just seemed to be a magnet for a certain kind of person uh, who was uh, waiting and watching for something like this to happen. So that was such a success, we decided to uh, continue with the symposium and make it an annual event, uh, this time in California at uh, Esalen, which Lang had visited many times. Of course, I live on the West Coast. Um, and uh, instead of a weekend, uh, we made it a five-day uh, workshop. It's still under the same title, R.D. Lang in the 21st Century. Uh, themes change each year. Uh, but it's kind of a melting pot, a place where maybe 40, 50 people can come, hang out for a few days, enjoy the excellent ambiance. And tell us about uh, Gnosis House. So Gnosis House has also come out of this project. Uh, as soon as we uh, set up the first Esalen meeting in 2015, we 
decided to uh, start looking for a house where we could replicate the Kingsley Hall Portland Road experience in the Bay Area, uh, bringing some of what we learned from Shadows uh, and Satyria. And uh, we're at now at the point where we are looking for a property. We're looking for donations uh, to help us um, help to either purchase it or take out a lease. We have people lined up who are ready to move in and live there. Uh, we'll have a couple of staff people living there full time. We'll have a couple of students living there full time with no roles. Uh, we're trying to replicate that. Uh, spirit, you know, that made Portland Road work, where it's a balance between people in crisis and people who are there for the adventure. We don't have a lot of time left in the interview, Michael. Why don't you just give us the contact information if people want to find out more about Gnosis Retreat, if they want to find out more about the R.D. Lang and the 21st Century Symposium at Esalen, they want to get in touch with you. Um, give us the contact information. Oh, I'd be happy to, Will. Uh, people can email me at Michael Guy, G-U-Y, Thompson, at Mac.com. We also have, uh, I also have a website, www.MichaelGuyThompson.com. We have a website for our Gnosis Retreat Center, which is Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, RetreatCenter.org. And that lays out uh, all the information and contact information you would need if you're interested in uh, being a client or helping uh, to donate or give support in any other way. Michael Guy Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Guy Thompson. He's a psychoanalyst who trained with the Scottish psychiatrist R.D. Lang. Uh, he is the author of The Death of Desire. He's a teacher and trainer and on the faculty of the California Institute of Integral Studies and the Psychoanalytic Institute of Northern California. Michael is the director of the R.D. Lang and the 21st Century Seminars at Esalen Institute, and he's the founder of the Gnosis Retreat Center in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net. Mm-hmm.